This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. With emotions around the election at their peak right now, we check in today with therapist Jennifer Young. She is a trauma specialist, and she is also a leader with Indivisible Action Tampa Bay. This discussion covers a lot. We talk about anxiety, anger, how or even if to repair broken relationships, and how to keep going in the face of exhaustion. And as a heads up, Jennifer also talks very bluntly about what may lie ahead for us in the coming days and weeks and how we can prepare ourselves. We hope that you'll join us for this important discussion. It's next. Hey, everybody. So as we enter the final days of the most important election of our lifetimes, boy, are we hearing that a lot. Uh, People are just feeling a whole host of emotions, anticipation, dread, hope, exhaustion. The list just goes on and on and on. So I thought this would be a great time to check in with our dear friend, Jennifer Young. She is a therapist who specializes in trauma. She is also a leader with Indivisible Action Tampa Bay. And we are so glad, so grateful that you're here. How are you doing, Jennifer? Yeah, thanks so much for having me back again. I um, I will admit I'm feeling it. Um, yeah. I I literally am just trying to get myself through to November third um, so that I can sleep a little bit on the fourth, and then as you know, and we'll discuss like who knows what we will have to gear up for after that. But I I'm feeling it. I'm really feeling it. I'm. It's really hard work to stay in the game at this point. I'm sure that you are, and especially because, as we all know, Florida is a key battleground state, one that could decide the election. What is the mood like there among indivisibles, and are they feeling the pressure? Yeah, I think we really are feeling the pressure. I was um, mentioning to you before that we are, not only me personally, um, in Pinellas County, we are in the swingiest county in this swing state. Um, Pinellas County, I, I, I took a few little notes here from our local paper because there's been some articles recently about Pinellas County in particular. Um, Barack Obama won Pinellas twice, um, but Trump outpaced Hillary Clinton by 5,000 votes mm-hmm. um, in 2016. So, you know, our county has gone blue before, um, but that one year with Trump by 5,000 votes. So we have um, definitely an opportunity to swing the state. Just um, a lot of um, listeners have probably heard about the I-4 corridor. So we are on that western edge of the I-4 corridor going all the way over to Orlando, um, which is generally a little bit more blue. Our indivisible group covers Hillsborough and Pinellas. Hillsborough is kind of traditionally pretty blue. Um, so it's really Pinellas County that um, if we can just do this work and and get these blue voters out. Um, I I you know have high hopes. Um, and it is a lot of pressure. It is, I'm sure. And I want to thank you uh, all for, for doing the work down there. You guys are doing uh, incredible, vital work right now. Um, I want to tr- track back to the actually one of the very first times that we spoke. And, and in sub- subsequent times, you have driven the point home that if you feel helpless or angry, that the, the, the curative is to just get involved, is to just throw yourself into the work. And what I'm getting now is, as we get into the final stages, that people are doing the work, sometimes to the point of exhaustion, and that they still feel that it is not enough to meet the enormity of the moment. What advice yeah. do you have for people right now? Yeah, I will just say I personally can relate to that at this point. That's kind of what, you know, what I feel in this moment is, 
you know, the getting involved helps our brain kind of settle that uh, emotional response that we have to things. Staying engaged helps our brain and our emotions. But at this process, because we've been working so hard and because it means so much, that's where that exhaustion is coming from. Um, we've just been working so hard. I would beg everyone to just kind of see the end, not so much the light at the end of the tunnel, as we say, because we really don't know. Yeah. Um, but we do know that we will, will be able to hit a reset button on November 3rd. Whatever it looks like on the other side, we can pick up and regroup. But if we can just look towards the reset on November 3rd, we have to push. We have literally, especially Indivisibles, have been working for four years for this moment. Like, really, um, for all the things that we stood up for and, um, and uh, protested against and uh, made our voices loud about, all of that mattered. But this is really, really, really it. So, you know, I, what I'm saying is we have to push through the exhaustion. We just have to push through. We have, I think, 11 days now. I think, um, so we have to do that. You know, I know many of our members, we always encourage folks to do what you can, when you can, um, in any way that you can. And if you can't this weekend, then don't this weekend. You know, that, that would be my other thing is thinking about the next 11 days. What can you do physically, emotionally, psychologically? What can you do? That's really it. Um, doing what you can and uh, pushing through. Well, I, you know, you anticipated my next question was about, you know, how we should push to get ourselves through because we constantly hear that yeah. this is a marathon, not a sprint. And now we can see the finish yeah. line. And so yeah. I, I will ask you a very traditionally uh, a, a question that I think is traditionally in a therapist's wheelhouse. And that is about guilt. I think a, there's yeah. a lot of underlying guilt right now um, that somehow we are just not doing enough. How do you address that? Well, I think if someone is involved in an indivisible group right out of the gate, you're doing enough. Joining up with other like-minded folks and being part of that effort, you have done enough. Um, as a whole, we won't know until November 3rd. And so there's no sense in kind of letting that guilt be something that is part of your everyday process because we just don't know. This is the thing with um, our emotional well-being. Folks get caught up in their emotions and don't um, dig in on the facts. And um, your guilt feelings, I haven't done enough, what if I'm not doing enough, that's valid. But then check in with yourself, like, what have you done? Uh, what can you do? Um, and, and once you ask yourself those questions and can validate the answers, I have participated, I've been to sign wavings, I've done postcards, I've done calling, I've done canvassing, not all of those things, but like any one of those things that you've done, is enough. You've done your part. Think about the difference between, you know, six years ago, eight years ago, 10 years ago, and activism today. How many more people are active today in this election than in previous elections? So just looking at that as a whole, we've all done an enough. We won't really know until November 3rd if it's enough. And, and that's not any one individual person's responsibility to, to take that on. Um, you have to look individually at yourself. What have you done? And is it has it been what is enough for you? 
and uh, and don't um, don't attend to the feeling of the guilt. Stay focused on what it is for you, what you have done. I like that a lot. I, I actually would advise people then maybe to just kind of go back through old notebooks, go through old calendars, yeah. look at your schedule and just yeah. maybe tabulate all the things that you've done over the last four years. Uh, I think yeah. you yeah. will be uh, quite surprised at how much you have committed yourself to. I know the listeners to this program uh, have yeah. done uh, just extraordinary amounts of work. And remember, you know, in all these four years, we have not had one issue, two issues, three issues. We've had a myriad of large scale moral issues that we have had to hit the streets for. And I know personally, I have fellow Indivisible members who who can't emotionally or physically be as active for this election cycle. But I know where they were when we had to drive to Homestead because there were children in cages. Right. I know where they were when the Muslim ban was enacted. So looking back at your own calendar, that the effort you put in on these other huge issues that made a difference to get us all to this point. So even for folks that can't do anything for the next two weeks or haven't done anything for a month, what have you done in the last four years? The one thing you did is enough that built the capacity that pushed this movement forward. So that's another thing to kind of keep in mind. Because you work in trauma, I have a couple questions that are specific uh, to that, because this keeps coming up. I keep hearing people in the media talking about how one of the reasons people feel so anxious right now, even with Biden being comfortably ahead in the polls, is because they've been traumatized by the election in 2016. Some even compare it to PTSD. Uh, First, I'll just ask you, is that a fair or even accurate comparison? Most definitely. Absolutely. This is and was a traumatic experience for most people or most people who have empathy or most people who have a high degree of empathy. Um, There is no way you couldn't have experienced the Muslim ban, the attacks on healthcare, the children in cages and not have been traumatized. If you weren't, again, I don't, I I guess I am going to give my clinical opinion that, you know, there's an empathy issue there and I'm not, you know, I don't want to, I'm not saying that lightly. I'm saying that very seriously. So the, the the thing that makes it traumatizing is, and again, this is where people maybe have a hard time wrapping their head around the idea that it's traumatizing because it didn't happen to them, right? Uh, many things happen to us and our families, um, but even if it hadn't, the, the problem is things can be traumatizing because they shake up who we are. They attack the foundation of what we believe. There's a term um, I've talked about before on here called cognitive dissonance, and it's holding two opposite thoughts that you cannot make sense of and cannot resolve. And and deeper than that, not just thoughts, but beliefs that um, we as Americans and human beings are expected to care for every child regardless, right? That is a belief that we hold as human beings and as Americans. And then to know that at this point in time, there are 527 children. Yeah. I apologize if I got the number wrong, but that I we think it, cannot yeah, find it's, it's right time. around there. I think it's 545, yeah. but just, a, just an unconscionable yeah. number of children will never be yeah. reunited with their parents. Will never be reunited with their families. So here you are as a human being trying to hold those two realities. That is soul crushing. And so cognitive dissonance is us trying to hold these two opposite things that are deeply emotional and personal to us and getting no resolution, right? I've joked, I don't mean to joke, but I've joked before about cognitive dissonance on a lighter level, trying to decide where you're gonna go to dinner, right? And the discomfort we feel when we are, should we go to Applebee's or Chili's, Apple, you know, and you're like, get frustrated. And you're like, come on, somebody just decide. 
and then somebody decides and it's kind of resolved. That is cognitive dissonance. It's just a very surfacey level. So you apply that to experiencing something that is so soul crushing, value destroying, and that's why it's traumatizing. And then you layer that, right? right. So the night that Hillary lost and then everything else that followed after that we had to be exposed to that our friends and our family had to go through uh, as a result of this administration. That's what the trauma is. It's that psychological conflict um, for those that were never physically impacted by this administration. It's that psychological experience that is trauma. That is the foundation of psychological abuse and psychological trauma is that cogn sustained cognitive dissonance. And I think what's unique in this situation is that people who get involved with activism have higher levels of empathy anyway. And so yeah. we are yeah. probably more susceptible to things like trauma. So that's that's a compounding yeah. issue. Yeah. I mean, honestly, what I'm finding um, in my you know anecdotal experience is um, really people with average levels of empathy are having these reactions, let alone the folks that have high levels of empathy. And I think that's why we're seeing more folks get involved because any average person um, with some degree of empathy has to look at um, some of these situations and recognize the harm. Um, so yeah, I think that's definitely a factor. I have gotten absolutely, when, when I mentioned you were coming on, I got bombarded. And so I just want to get mm -hmm. to some of these uh, right away. Um, trust issues came up. Um, a lot of the experiences of the last four years, I think, have broken a lot of people's ability to trust. Um, someone says, what about trust issues that result from trauma, distrust of the government, distrust of others, distrust because they are Trump supporters or anti-maskers, or because there is just so much distrust and paranoia in general that it starts to color your view of everyone? This is a biggie, but how, provided things go our way um, in this election, how do we begin to restore our ability to trust people and when that trust has been broken? Yeah, again, I think a lot of folks that have gone through this experience or any traumatic event, we have to keep in mind um, what your level of trust was prior to the event as a way to understand how impactful the uh, lack of trust has been to you. And if you wore rosier colored glasses, right, and kind of believed that people were good, maybe you didn't believe or didn't understand what it, what a psychopath was. And, 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 you know, Donald Trump is a psychopath. So like thinking that psychopaths have something to do with killing people and other terrible behaviors, you know, that it's in your face now that that kind of a human being is, it can be that bad. So that, Having rosy colored glasses and then being kind of hit in the face with this level of pathology can really knock you on your butt in regards to um, now I don't trust anybody. And I kind of think about a pendulum swinging where before what the term is blind trust, right? If I'm trustworthy, everybody else is trustworthy. That's what blind trust is. And a lot of people exist in that space or with that concept, right? But it's really dangerous, frankly, to have blind trust, right? And so when you lose that sense and you've been traumatized, your pendulum swings and now it's like, everybody's bad. I don't trust anybody. So it takes a little time for you as a human being to kind of recenter on, wait a minute, blind trust was never good for me. I have to understand that there are untrustworthy people in the world and I can't go around not trusting anyone. I've got to kind of find this center space. 
And what I ask folks to do is be okay with the little bit of wall that you've built and the little bit of uh, distrust that you have or maybe high level of distrust that you have. Be okay there. Take care of yourself in that space. Um, keep those walls up for a little while until you feel a little better. And then dip your toe back in the pond of trust. You know, we should, we should always have a healthy level of distrust. Sure, absolutely. But does it help to maybe think about some of the more trustworthy people in your life, even people who you know on kind of a surface level, to try to create some sort of equilibrium? I mean, this might be facile, but go with me on this. So I remember after 9-11, um, everybody obviously was terribly traumatized by that. And Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, uh, of all people, kind of weighed in on it. And he said, in moments like that, my mother said, look at all the people running in to help. Those are the people that I focus on. Yeah. Is, does that sort of thinking yeah. help or is that just, uh, yeah. Is that unrealistic? Yeah, so centering that equilibrium and getting behind kind of your safe space allows you to become an observer of people and no longer have these glasses on that you see everyone through. I want you to look at the helpers, look at all the people that have stepped up to help, to come to this, these movements and help create change and be a better observer of people who haven't and don't and won't and can't. Where before it was like, everybody's good, everybody's nice, I'm trustworthy, everybody's trustworthy. So yeah, you know what, but you've got to get safe before you can have good discernment. Yeah. And that's what has happened is so many people have been unsafe and or felt unsafe. And so when you are unsafe or feel unsafe, you have a really hard time discerning who is trustworthy. And that's why everybody feels dangerous to you. So get yourself safe calm, relaxed, coping skills, physically safe, psychologically safe, and then dip your toe back out there and go, oh yeah, look, there's my indivisible friends and folks that I can trust from indivisible. And oh yeah, I can, you know, my mom is trustworthy to me. My dad, you know, he's still got some Trumpy in him or whatever, you know, like, um, so just kind of managing that individually a little bit. And, and again, I agree. Look for the people who have helped, who have stepped up. We'll get to family members in a moment because I have a, a yeah. number of questions about that. Um, I want to talk about anger. We spoke about this a couple times uh, previously. Yeah. This, this one's a big deal for me. Um, how do we deal with the constant anger and rage with just everything that has happened over the last four years and that continues to happen every hour sometimes? Um, we know that it's, un it's unhealthy to shove it down and, and suppress it and say we're not feeling it. Yeah. So how do we process yeah. it in a reasonably healthy way? Yeah, I will forever encourage people to accept their righteous anger, to accept the idea that your anger is valid and okay. Anger in situations of abuse, let us, when we feel anger as a survivor or a victim, um, it lets us know that we have been betrayed and hurt. And so when survivors and victims are not angry, um, I get a little concerned, right? So I, first and foremost, how do we cope with it? You accept that it's okay, right? You don't, resist it. You don't fight against it. You don't say, how dare I be so angry? Or I'm so mad at myself because I'm so angry. Like, don't get into all of that shaming and judging of your emotional responses. Of course, you're angry. It's okay to be angry. It makes sense that you're angry. When you lean into those emotions and accept that they're valid and real, again, it just kind of settles things down a little bit for us to think clear about what do I need to do about my anger? What is my anger specifically about? And how can I resolve either that thinking or that behavior? What can I do to change the situation that is making me so angry? 
you know, and sometimes, you know, for folks that are actually impacted by some of these policies, you lose control. You don't have control if the Trump administration has um, hurt someone in your family or, you know, the local police department is not standing up um, for you as a BLM protester who's been, you know, violated and hit um, by the police department. Like those are real things that have caused you harm and warrant your anger. And I, and, and to kind of help resolve that, you know, do your coping skills, do some breathing, some mindfulness to keep yourself as calm as you can and good self-care and, and manage your thinking. Um, who's there for you? What is good? You know, kind of keep yourself in check in that way. It's kind of compounded, I think, because a lot of this feels personal and intentional. Um, yes. There are people yes. whose whole intention is to, you know, own the libs. And so it's it, it's harder to process when you recognize that this is not this is by design. This is not a, a bug. It's a feature in, in, in how yeah. in, in, in the, the emotional response that it's evoking. With yes. Us. Yes. It is personal and it is intentional. Let's let's just validate that that the, the point of this administration is cruelty. That is how they control people and us. And for many folks, they have been intentionally um, harmed by this administration. So we need to make sure we are really, really clear about those facts. Um, and again, that's why the rage and the anger is so warranted it leaves us with a sense of powerlessness, right? Like what can we do to control the situation? And I do appreciate Indivis Indivisible's messaging on this um, kind of big picture is we have to get Trump out of office. There is no policy change that we can um, enact without removing this administration. Um, and at the very least, we have to get the Senate and the House, right? So that's kind of the backup plan is if for some reason we don't remove Trump, we have to get the Senate and the House. That's the only way. That's where our power is. That's why the work is so important. On a lower level and locally, you know, fighting on, um, you know, I know here locally we've got some issues with our police departments and making sure that our power comes from standing with to each other, standing next to each other, encouraging uh, folks to show up on behalf of those that have been directly harmed. You know, that's where our power can come from. Um, um, so I think those are the important things. If you guys are just joining us right now, we are talking with our friend Jennifer Young. She is a trauma specialist. She also is a leader with Indivisible Action Tampa Bay. So she is right at uh, really ground zero of this this year's uh, monumentous election. Uh, I had a question related to anger, which was about judgment. Um, just okay. questions about being judgy and angry around people. And I'm feeling this myself. People who are not wearing masks in public, people who are in public places in defiance of CDC recommendations. Any thoughts on how you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, again, I, I, I kind of challenge the idea of what it means to judge other people. I'm kind of a fan of it. <laughs> I know that's the opposite. <laughs> You're getting sick. I'm hearing applause right now when you say that. Yeah, yeah. Hear me out. Um, you know, when you think about judgment, it's kind of been given a bad name, this idea of judgment. Um, and judgment for judgment's sake isn't good, like tossing around your opinions because, you know, you want to be a jerk. That's not good. But judgment in the sense of it really definitionally is about um, the facts of a situation and then your personal formulation of an opinion about that. That's what judges do. Right. So they listen to the facts 
they take in the law and then they formulate their personal opinion and come to a decision based on those things. So I personally am a fan of, of judging others in the sense of you need to do what um, your due diligence to take in the facts of the situation based on, and let's talk specifically about coronavirus, your household, your lifestyle, your community, um, the science that you understand and believe. You need to be open and take all of that information in and then feel free to formulate whatever opinions you need to formulate to protect yourself and your family. Like this, you know, again, my, the drum that I beat quite a bit is what are you doing to keep yourself safe? Safety is everything. Yeah. So if, you know, if you've taken in all the considerations um, from a fact standpoint that affect you in regards to coronavirus and, um, and are using that to have an opinion about people that don't wear masks, um, whether it's in your personal workplace or your personal environment, church, whatever, um, have at it. Um, because you have responsibility to yourself and the people you love. You know, again, here in Florida, it's pretty terrible in this state in regards to the um, with with regards to coronavirus and how the community and the state as a whole um, is being encouraged. You know, we basically have governors that, you know, go to super spreader events and no mask and laugh about it and think it's hysterical. And so we have to as individual citizens have to take it upon ourselves, number one, to have a voice. We call in, a lot of us call in our local commission meetings to keep the emergency orders in place locally and the mask ordinances in place. So we have to stand up and do that. But then we have to change the way we behave because I cannot trust my neighbors. I cannot trust folks in the local grocery store. Um, and again, in other communities, it's different because they have leadership from top to bottom that understands science. We don't have that here. So I think judgment on a whole, you know, you, you got to, you have to. We do have that here and we're still seeing a lot of the same uh, behavior yeah. here. I hear my wife in the other room uh, vigorously nodding uh, right now. <laughs> we have a question yeah. that kind of piggybacks on the, the question about judgment. And that has to do with people who uh, sideline when it comes to politics. Don't feel that, you know, they either feel above getting involved in politics. They don't feel that politics is worth their time. They don't really engage and or understand the stakes. Mm -hmm. What do you, because that, that can create so much resentment and anger. How do you deal with that? Okay. Well, this is my personal, uh, bias, hot button issue is apathy. Um, and in particular apathy in the white community. Um, I, I, Honestly, I probably don't have much nice to say and much help to offer because it just it infuriates me. Well, then you're validating, I think, what people are feeling. And yeah, that's I mean, good. I guess, no. I guess in some ways, no. <laughs> number one, I'm human. But number two, like I cannot wrap my head around folks that are apathetic. And I, I think there is a difference as an activist, as someone who is highly engaged. Um, I work hard to poke people around me. It's, it's very intentional. And, um, and then I'm also respectful of my friends and family in that I'll poke you and we'll, we'll engage in a healthy way. And if you don't want to engage, that's cool, you know? But I think it's my responsibility as a human being and as a white woman immersed in a white community to do that. That's my responsibility. And, and I think that is um, the very, very least we could do. And so when I'm poking, um, what I tend to realize is there are folks that are just not interested in the activism of it all. 
right? I had one friend say to me, you know, I work with the homeless. I volunteer, and she has consistently for decades, a long time with the homeless. And that's her jam. That's her thing. And that's cool. I'm an activist. I like to go and canvas and do that kind of stuff. It doesn't mean she doesn't care, right? So she doesn't post stuff on Facebook about politics and she's not highly engaged in the issues. But when I poke, it's like, oh, no, no, no. She, she understands it. She gets it. But it's just not her activity level, right? And so I think that's um, the other kind of thing to pay attention to is there are folks that just don't like to do the work that we're doing. It doesn't mean they don't care or don't understand the issues. And I think that's really where some of us who are a little bit more involved if we can just do a little bit of poking to make sure that people understand the issues or engaged in the issues, even, even just for themselves, even if they're not, you know, don't have a, a bullhorn about it. Um, I think that is the best we can do to engage. Um, you can't, you, you can't really force folks to do right. anything they don't want to do. And you right? have to deal so with that, your own resentment in certain, in certain situations where you're just like, God damn yeah. it. Why aren't you seeing the, the, the importance yeah. here? Yeah. Yes. And I, I personally will pull away from people who I think have a level of apathy that is unhealthy and unsafe for me personally and for the community. Well, you're a big advocate of that. You will, you've said in past shows, like if somebody is, you know, like if you have a Trump supporting relative who is unreachable, walk away. I'm out. I'm out. And I've definitely taken a hard stand on what it means to be a friend and an acquaintance and a Facebook friend. Like, you know, I used to think like, oh, Facebook isn't real. But now, like, I'm not your friend if you if you don't have the level of 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 engagement that is safe um, for other humans, not for me, not for you. But like people are dying. And if you can't engage at least in conversation with someone you trust, me, your friend, then I got nothing for you. I cannot be engaged with you and, and, and around you. And I just, it's not cool. And I, I think societally, those kinds of shifts have to happen. Like we it, were, you know, I, the word shunning is coming to my head, which feels terrible. Um, but but on it, some level. <laughs> but, but does it really? Know, it feels appropriate to me. Yeah. Right. On some level, if we don't start taking folks who will not work on lifting up everyone, everyone, um, and frankly, um, pushing down the white community, like that's what has to happen is white people have to fall. That it, I can't see a way around it. We are too high for too long. It's not okay. It is not okay. Well, well I. I think a lot, a lot of that stems from the fact that uh, equality feels like oppression uh, to a certain type of uh, conservative white person. And so that's Correct. and and honestly, <laughs> there have been seminars about that. And, and that's something that we could yeah. probably go off onto a, a whole a sidebar about. But I do want to ask you a question about personal safety. Uh, and this came mm-hmm. from a friend of mine who is actually very fearful because of where she lives. And I'm, I'm sure that you have yeah. people who feel uh, yeah. the, the same way where, where you live. She says, I'm afraid to hang a bike. Biden flag on our home because we live in a school district that raffles off AR-15s to raise money for kids' sports. How do we go about life normally when we literally feel like a civil war is imminent? Yeah, I mean, samesies. I I feel the same way. I think we have that issue here that there is um, real fear, uh, valid fear um, of harm being done to us. And again, I, I, I really would beg folks to do what is individually right for them. Um, I, as you know, we just said, I'm a big fan of taking a stand and taking those risks. However, 
um, the danger is real. Um, so I think we have to kind of um, be mindful of those decisions. What is what is way more important than hanging a Biden flag is canvassing 20 houses. <laughs> like if you can't hang a Biden flag, make 20 phone calls, canvass 20 houses, um, show up at a BLM um, rally or march, you know, that is way more important. So I think that's another thing for us to consider is some of the type of activism that may or may not be the most helpful um, and to consider what what that is. I mean, hanging a Biden flag in a Trump neighborhood where where it's, you know, taking that risk, I, I think that's cool. And, and we should be doing that, too, you know. But if you can't because you are really concerned about your personal safety, then just know that whatever other thing you can do to take a stand will be just as important. I think the question goes a little bit deeper. The way that I read it is she's afraid to go about her normal life because she feels that there's a societal uh, societal collapse that is imminent. And that's something that I feel like, you know, certainly we, we don't really personally have any control over. And so how do we, with that kind of running in the background in our heads, how do we just get up in the morning and have a normal day? I honestly feel like um, that is going to happen. I think um, from a trauma standpoint, and a, if we relate this administration to um, a domestic violence relationship, when a domestic violence relationship ends and the perpetrator loses control, um, it is the most dangerous time in that relationship. Because when a perpetrator loses control, they will try new measures to get control and they will do things that may they may have never done before. Physical violence, they will increase the physical violence, those kinds of things. That's why we say in the domestic violence community, leaving is the most dangerous time. So we are approaching that with this administration. So uh, November 3rd, we will hit the reset button and we will know within days, um, to some degree, what direction we're gonna turn. And we should all be ready and be ready to face the fact that we could have some sort of civil... Um, we'll certainly have a lot of civil unrest. I think we're probably unrest. too geographically discontiguous to have a full-on civil war. But I, I do think that a lot of people are, are they're predicting sporadic incidents of violence yes. around the country. Yes. yes, but I guess what I'm saying is I believe that could happen. So with that fear in mind, uh, how do you ultimately, how do you live with a fear that you can't control? I think this is one of the maybe $64,000 questions that we always ask therapists, right? Because we recognize that, you know, the vast majority of life is simply out of our control. And so I had a few people just ask me straight up, like, at, please ask her if you have any tips for dealing with anxiety generally. And I think they're, they're, they're alluding to, to situations like this where they're like, we don't have have any control over this situation. And so we're going to have to be able to mitigate our anxiety somehow. So, so as a, as a, a trauma therapist, how, how do you recommend just dealing with the anxiety that comes up over things that you just can't control? So I have something in my head. I'm going to just take a risk and, and talk about it. And Please. I don't know if this is related to who, who asked the questions, but what is coming up for me as a white woman is the level of fear and anxiety that I may be experiencing if this administration does not leave office or if they lose um, is, the, is um, the type of fear and anxiety that as a white woman, I should be prepared to sit with as this country potentially goes through a huge shift. So I don't 
you know, how do we cope with our fear and anxiety? Breathe, mindfulness, blah, 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 right? The stuff I always talk about. But ultimately, this could be and likely will be a very fear-producing, uncomfortable time for white people. And it should be. And you'll be okay. Stay on the right side of history. Stand up for your community. You'll be okay. Because I, I, what's coming up for me is the Black community, Hispanic community, Asian community, and the fear and anxiety that they have felt for hundreds of years. Yep. And how dare we sit here, at, at me as a white person, sit here and be too afraid to face this humongous shift that we could be experiencing. I just, you know, I, again, on a low level, cope with anxiety the same way you would. Do your breathing, do your mindfulness, keep, you know, keep your house safe as much as you can. But on a global scale, I hope and expect this country and all of us to be fearful and anxious for a significant period of time as we should, because there will be a shift. And that, it, no, it, that, that, I, I like that. I will just ask you then, uh, maybe sort of uh, backtracking on that a little bit. Are there any ways to prepare mentally, mm. emotionally, physically for feeling that level of intensity that is likely coming? Yeah, I, I think what is helpful is to acknowledge that it will that it is OK to feel that. And frankly, that will be what is required for us white people. And again, I don't mean to assume who asked the question. I'm simply speaking about the possible shift in society, um, that white people might be more fearful and anxious in the coming months because of this big shift. And to acknowledge that, that you're just going to have to be more anxious and fearful. That will be part of the process. Um, I, I think telling yourself that and acknowledging that, frankly, is your role, I think is important. You know, one of the things I learned early on as an activist, how important it was when I was confronted with my whiteness or, you know, with things that, you know, I was saying and I was made to feel very uncomfortable. And I learned so much more and felt safer once I rode that out and came to the other side to join with the new thinking that actually created equity, right? The things that I could sit and listen to and, and follow the lead of, of uh, women of color that um, needed to be heard. So when I made it through that anxiety and that discomfort and that, oh my God, I mean, that pit in your stomach, if I just wrote it out and just sat quiet and listened to the leaders who were speaking to me and asking me to join them, when I came out on the other side, there I was with them. And, um, and I felt stronger. And I think that's part of this is accepting that we will be uncomfortable, we will be anxious, you know, do your breathing, do your mindfulness, keep your home physically safe. But um, for every day that you feel discomfort, be on the right side, sit and listen and, and lift up voices that have not been lifted up. And when it is over, you will be okay. We will be better and stronger. I'm just going to sit for a moment and let that sink in because I think what you just said um, is it requires that. Um, yeah, I think that's something that we all need to spend a little time thinking about and processing. Uh, and I just have a couple other uh, issues that I want to talk with you about, and they have yeah. to do, as I mentioned, with relationships, family. Yeah. You've touched on this already a little bit. Uh, and, you know, as I said, you're absolutely an advocate of walking away from toxic relationships with Trump supporters. If we win, uh, people have asked, yep. how 
do we begin to put these relationships back together? Do you see the process of collectively dealing with Trump supporters being a possibility in the future? Um, I guess I'm always hopeful. Um, um, so yes. However, um, I think it's going to take some time. I think just because we win, you know, I don't think there's going to be this Ah, okay, this election is over. I don't like I, what what I just spoke to. I th I think we're in for a rocky road, no matter which direction this goes. So I think individually in our relationships, we need to see the election as a reset, as a let's stop, let's take a breather, and let's see where the chips fall, and then make some new decisions about how we will go forward. You know, I've talked before about the nature of the relationship that you need or want to preserve. Are we talking about your partner that you live in a house with? Or are we talking about your children? Or are we talking about your best friend? Like, who are we talking about here? And 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 evaluating that one-on-one -on -one, uh, and what level of repair is possible and what needs to happen versus, you know, your neighbors or your coworkers. Like, it's going to take some time. It's just going to take some time. And I'll, I'll repeat what I've always said is this is a moral issue. This is not political. You know, Thank the you. political stuff, the issues, the parties, that all exists here. Um, but where we have found ourselves is in a real, as Biden says, a struggle for the soul of this nation. I really do believe that. And this is a moral issue. And so each individual person relationally really owes it to themselves to take a hard look at their relationships. We came from a place of rose-colored glasses and everybody's trustworthy and, well, she's my mother, so I have to love her. And, and if anything, I hope what we will come out of this with is a better understanding of healthy and authentic relationships that labels cannot cover up immoral behavior. I don't care if you're my mother or my sister right? If we don't exist on the same moral space, then I have to change the way I interact with you for my well-being and the well-being of, of other people I love. So I think the, the upside is there could be some authenticity and better safety for each individual. Um, you know, the, the racism and the Trumpyism in my community and in the circles I've run in has, has been there. It's just now all on the surface. So it's allowed me to make better decisions about who is in my circle. Um, and, and that's better for me and my community, you know, that I know who is who and what's what. I, I think that is actually an extraordinarily uh, salient point to make that these issues didn't come from nowhere, that Trump is a... He is a symptom and and not the disease itself. The disease has been there. The mouthpiece. Right. It has been right. there uh, since the founding of this nation. It's it's in our DNA. What, what I hear you saying right now is that, that we are approaching a moment of, it's almost like a crucible, right, where we are going to burn off a lot of this pretense and we're going to come out on the other end with some clarity, ideally. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's really, you know, again, in, a, a, as a white person in a white community, I know the degree of racism that has existed behind the walls in my home and in the homes I go into. It has always been there. 
what this administration has done has empowered that racism to come to the surface, which has allowed me as a moral person um, and, and a person with values, and I'm not comparing, I'm just saying my morals, my values, it's allowed me to make better decisions. And I, I hope our country will once and for all um, be able to remove this facade of, of all for one and one for all e pluribus umen. It has been a joke since we were founded. It hasn't been real. And, um, and that's scary. That's the whole fear thing for white people that I mentioned, like that's scary. Yeah. Right. And you're like, holy crap. But, but that's what it is. It's, it, it has not been e pluribus unum. I hope I'm using that phrase. You right? are. I'm, yeah. <laughs> you are. Okay. <laughs> but you know, like we, it has not been this, it, we have not had equity and, um, and we've been kidding ourselves, um, that we have. So I want to end on an up note if we can. Um, we had a town hall recently in which we talked about some of our favorite moments over the last four years, what we have achieved is indivisible. So what are some of the things that you are proudest of uh, that we've accomplished as a group? Yeah, I think definitely just the coming together of like-minded individuals, personally, the friendships that have been formed and the ways that we've been able to come together in a moment's notice for really important things that we've created um, a loud enough platform where people know where to go to be there to actually have an impact. What we did with healthcare, what we did with the Muslim ban, those kinds of uh, things have been really important. The impact we've had on um, individual races um, locally all over the country, uh, the things we were able to do there. Um, and, and I will also add kind of to stay on brand with my chat today, what Indivisible has pushed forward that, that I've taken to heart is the idea of an inclusive democracy and Indivisible as an organization. And I also think in, in and amongst our groups, pushing the idea that if we don't include all, if we don't work hard to put ourselves in spaces that are inclusive and, and full of equity, we really aren't doing the work. Right. You're here. Um, so You're we here. can we can say we're out there on the street and say, but if we are not putting ourselves in spaces um, where everyone is included and lifted up, then it, it is not activism. And I think that's I've watched that happen with indivisible groups, with indivisible as an organization, and and locally with me. That has been really like to me the thing that has uh, really created an amazing shift. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Well, listen, I just have to tell you how much your friendship and counsel has meant to me over these last four years. You're an extraordinary person, and thank you for all that you do. Yeah, same to you. So much. So glad we connected. Thank you, my friend. And that'll do it for today. Thanks again to Jennifer Young. The website for our show is indivisiblepodcast.org, and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at IndivisiblePod. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Thanks this week to Catherine Fice Sears. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.